1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear.
1: All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.comslash wonder.
0: Welcome to the History Extra Podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The past 50,000 years of human history are underpinned by climate. So says best-selling author, Peter Frankopan, who argues that climate has dictated everything from the crops we grow and the water we drink to the diseases we might succumb to. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Peter about his wide-ranging new study, The Earth Transformed, where he examines our long and complex relationship with the natural world. So in your new book, you argue
3: that the history of humanity is inextricably linked to the history of the environment. Why is that?
4: Well, I suppose I'm not... Absolutely the first person to make that point. I mean, I suppose when we, when we start from the beginning of time, you know, those of the Abrahamic faith, so Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all have their origin story to do with the Garden of Eden. And the point of the Garden of Eden is if you obey God's commandments and you respect uh, what you're being told to do by the divine, you have plenty. You have optimal climate conditions, you have ecologies that give you everything you need. And then when you transgress... And you eat from the forbidden tree. You're punished by being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And other global religions have not exactly the same story, but similar ideas that humanity's relationship with the natural environment is absolutely fundamental to conceiving how it is that our existence takes place and and manifests itself. And so, to that extent, I guess the question is probably not. I'm not the first person to think about how the environment and ecologies and nature matter. I I guess we're all acutely aware in the world we live in today that we're living in a time of profound and very rapid uh, ecological, environmental and climatic change. And so we're much more sensitive, I think, to trying to understand what are the problems that are coming towards us. In fact, what are the problems that are already here? And so try to take the long view as a historian of thinking, well, how, how have those changes happened in the past? Where have there been big moments of great ecological change, not just by human beings, but uh, across other animal life forms too and plant life forms. And so then starting at the beginning of time, the, the Big Bang, trying to think about how was it that our Earth has actually been formed. Uh, we historians, we, you know, we tend to spend most of our time thinking about written records. And so that, that starts our existence as a species around right about 5000 BC when you start to find written records. Archaeologists obviously work on a longer time frame, But, you know, if we think about human beings and humans as a discrete species as we are today, our, our existence on this Earth Uh, from about, let's say, 50,000 BC, represents about 0.001% of the Earth's existence. And for most of the Earth's existence, the climatic environmental envelopes wouldn't have supported our kind of life forms because of carbon dioxide in the environment and methane gases and so on. And so understanding, I think, what our relationship is, how how. History and human history has been shaped by climate and the environment and ecologies and equally how humanity has intervened, changed, remodeled, taken advantage of the opportunities and created... Problems too seems to me quite an important and interesting question.
3: Certainly. And you mentioned that you go back to the dawn of time in your book, and I'm not proposing we go back quite that far in this interview.
4: Do we not have time? We could talk in, in real time. <laughs> Potentially do Four not. Billion years.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would like to have a brief visit to prehistory and to talk right. particularly about the Holocene because you say that this is a watershed moment for humanity. Why
4: is that? Well, I mean, a lot, lots depends on how one does. Like, All historians are worried about periodization. And there are always dangers in picking a sort of start point because it always presupposes an end point. You know, we think about the early modern period, you know, or the Middle Ages or whatever. And the Holocene, I guess, is, is no, no different. But the period we're sort of talking about is the bit where humans start to uh, become more numerous start to spread out across all the different continents and start to find ways of mitigating against ecological stress. And those ecological stresses can come from lots of different sources. That can come from too many people in too narrow an envelope. I mean, that's fairly straightforward if there are lots of people and too many mouths to feed, then, uh, you know, not enough animals or protein sources or cereal sources, uh, that creates a problem. Equally, if you are living in an environment which changes in terms of its uh, long term, you know, changes tend not to be, you know, one warm summer or five hot summers it tends to be periods that change over the over the longer term how do you adapt to those kinds of things so our species that kind of modern human beings if we think about let's say again uh, fifty thousand years ago or so start to move into places like europe and displace or replace neanderthals and other uh, other hominins then we we start to see a world where the question is which areas get colonized by populations first and why and some of those i think no surprise to anybody who studied history tend to be the places that we pick up when we think about human history quite early on like the nile uh, mesopotamia the areas of you know what's now primarily iraq chinese civilizations typically on on the Yangtze and the yellow river and then the indus valley civilizations in uh, the Americas, particularly, it tends towards civilizations and cultures that pop up in Central America, Mexico, Guatemala, and so on. But those societies are becoming more complex as there are more people, and the challenges and opportunities that are presenting require new kinds of solutions, new kinds of answers. I always try to be very careful to say nothing happens because of climate change, but climate is always a factor that underpins everything. I mean, it's, it goes without saying, I guess, that environmental. Uh, opportunities and contexts that we live in dictate, you know, what we can grow. You know, I mean, we know that in Britain, we're quite good at growing wheat and crops and cows and grazing animals, but we're not very good at growing pineapples. You know, it sort of stands to reason that you're shaped by what your opportunities are. But so thinking around the period from the last glacial maximum about ten, 000, twelve thousand 12,000 years ago, where there's an uptick in the climatic opportunities, climatic systems, then our ancestors start to behave in slightly different ways because there there are more of us. Knowledge is shared in in ways which I think is very interesting to think around in our networked age today about how do, how do ideas spread. And people who are living 10,000 years ago or more were very adept at trying to work out what, what technologies worked and what didn't. How did they pass those on? And you can see as we come closer towards the, I guess, the modern world is the Bronze Ages and so on about 4,000 years ago or so, you find technologies, you find tools being spread across really very, very long distances indeed. And so understanding what it is that humanity, how humans have worked out how to solve problems is a really interesting way of trying to look through at the past. And of course, you know, it goes without saying that that's the primary question we have in the 21st century, which is what are the steps that we should be taking? And what are the challenges and the problems that we've really got? already here and coming towards us? And how do we work together? And funnily enough, one of the themes I think of the book is about how adaptable we've been. You know, the terrible things that humans have done to each other in warfare and genocide repeatedly, and yet we're still here. You know, we we are the only species that's managed to colonize all the continents. Uh, We're the only species that's worked out how to develop weapons that could kill everybody and everything. And you know we 're quite resilient, despite all the kind of obvious uh, challenges that we create for ourselves, so I think that inserting us and inserting the human historical experience into that sort of uh, environmental context is I- important. There are lots of historians who do that too you know environmental history has been a really important a burgeoning field for well, for, for several decades. But I think what 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 I've tried to do in this book, a bit like with the book I read about the Silk Roads, is try to sort of pull back into a big canvas to try to join up lots of dots and lots of themes.
3: Thinking about taking that bird's-eye view and zooming out, one of the themes that really stood out to me is the comparison between settled societies and nomadic societies. What were the benefits or potentially also the disadvantages for nomadic societies in dealing with climate change?
4: Well, I carry a torch for nomadic people, mobile groups, Partly because of the the work I've done for, I mean, it's a shame to say decades. I feel still, I still feel quite young. But <laughs> I've done for a long time on the peoples, particularly of Central Asia. And typically the nomadic peoples from... Herodotus and the early sources onwards, and including in today's world, are denigrated by all sorts of writers who tend to be metropolitan, city-based, who think that the way that mobile peoples live is is because they don't live in cities, is basic and ridiculous. And the people who live that way are primitive. That's the word that has often been used, unsophisticated. And in fact, uh, mobile groups are, of course, extremely adept Uh, understanding their ecologies, because if they don't, then their their flocks die, their lifeways disappear very quickly. So I sort of am very keen on uh, making sure that they feature in global histories, but also inserting them to the histories of cities, because although the liberal elites or metropolitan elites who've dominated history writing for thousands of years uh, denigrate mobile pastoral groups. Those of us who live in cities, as as I do in Oxford, tend not to slaughter our own food, tend not to grow our own food, tend to be dependent entirely on finding other people to grow our textiles that we wear and, uh, and the leathers that we use for our day-to-day equipments and so on. And nomadic peoples are the primary source of protein, the primary sources of dairy products, primary sources of wool, of textiles, of leather, And it's interesting, I think, to me, and I make the point at the beginning of the book, that when we think about civilization, you know, that really means the history of cities, you know, from the the Latin, civitas and cities, that we want to write always about urban and hierarchical societies. And we tend to think, well, if, if you don't write histories down on a page, if you rely on oral traditions... Um, as lots of mobile groups do and nomadic groups do, then you're a kind of bit part player. And in fact, inserting and underlining how important the combination between the sedentary and the non-sedentary worlds are, are hugely important, I think, uh, of any period in history. And I think, again, always I'm I'm trying to drag back into today's world. You know, we are looking, we were at about 3% of the world's population living in cities about 150 years ago or so by the middle of the century, we're probably at about 70% of the world's population living in cities. And it doesn't take much to realise that that puts huge stress on energy demands, huge stress on food demands, huge stress on water, because it's difficult to build cities that are functional. It's difficult to build cities that have sanitary conditions that don't help spread disease. And as we all learnt in COVID, the best way to protect yourself from disease is to keep away from each other. And if you live in cities, that's really quite tricky. So I think that the the combination of where do we put and how do we integrate oral histories, how do we integrate sedentary or non-sedentary and mobile peoples, how do we learn from indigenous populations from whom understanding not just how to survive in nature, but how to unlock the codes of you know medicines and so on uh you know for example the Bushmen in kalahari have been fantastic in over many many centuries and millennia in working out which plants work best as homeopathic and actual remedies that pharmaceutical companies now pop up and and claim as their own so i think i think trying to have a 360 degree look at history means being inclusive and that's inclusivity. It's not just, I mean, as you happen to ask about uh, nomadic peoples, but inclusivity about looking at other regions of the world that often slip out the door of, of big global histories or, or regional histories because there's so little attention paid to them. And in fact, there's so little work done on them. There's so little material. And then you're in a, into a vicious circle because there's not enough written about Oceania or sub-Saharan Africa. And it's quite hard to kick
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to
2: hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's second skin underwear
3: Definitely. And next in the conversation, I'd like to follow that thread of disease, because as you Mm. mentioned, if you are tightly packed together in a city, Mm. of course, you're more likely to succumb. How far back can we trace a link then between disease and pathogens and climate?
4: That's a a very good question. I mean, pathogens, they need a, a combination of sort of perfect storms to make them spread. Often pathogens are highly influenced by climatic changes. So in the world of emerging infectious diseases, there are around about 600 emerging infectious diseases, around 60-65% of those are highly sensitive to changes in temperature. And um, in a warming world, most of those temperature changes, they work against us. In a warming world, some work in the other direction. Uh, But climate on its own is not enough. You need to have vectors that distribute those diseases and those vectors or the, the, the transporters of disease can be well, what we learned at school rats with a black death although probably it's not just rats which carry the pathogen uh, it can be things like birds that scavenge on dead animals and, and human corpses and then spread the disease. It can be also through airborne sources too. But it's not enough to just have one thing changing. You need to have a distribution of the way in which the, the diseases can move around. And then ideally you have lots of people who live close by. So we find plague, for example, 4,000 years ago in the tripilia cultures of what's now Ukraine and southern Russia, uh, where there's a sort of sudden population collapse, uh, probably something to do with... Uh, the spread of plague. And so these things, they pop up from time to time. I mean, the most famous ones, of course, the Black Death, but also the plague in the 17th century, uh, the Justinianic plague in the in the 540s and onwards. And then, you know, things like Spanish flu and coronavirus that we've looked at too. If people connect with each other, they trade with each other, they exchange, they buy and sell things, they move around, they, they take things with them that aren't just good news they don't just allow you to get your laptops cheaper than normal or your latest cell phone or whatever you order online arrives the next day those exchanges have a downside and we we learned that um the last two or three years because of pandemics and airlines don't just take you on holiday they infect the world in whatever it was we now know sort of 18 24 hours so i think that those kinds of things are are important in our changing world but in terms of how we think about global histories uh the spread of disease is is the kind of one of the fundamental um things that joins up regions and societies that goes back to as far as you can chart through not just the written records but through uh genetic stuff and some some scholars like monica green and others have been you know done this incredible work in decoding the genetic materials of and the DNA of pathogens, so that we can really start to see where things like smallpox appear for the first time. You know that most of these diseases jump from animals into the human chain, and again, that, as it did with bats in Wuhan. And one of the products of living with domesticated animals, whether you eat them or you want them for company, with like dogs, or you have comestibles animals like rats or mice that foxes that grab whatever's on the floor after you eat. Those kinds of harmonies are great when the times are good, but uh, a flicker of the switch sends those to become lethal. And quite often, again, climate's never the only flicker and the only switch, but usually climate is in, involved some way. And we see that again with these big plague outbreaks. Uh, we see it even with the Spanish flu in uh, in 1918, where although... One of the issues was about um, malnutrition, you know, malnourishment, the perfect conditions for the spread of disease because of large numbers of people moving around the world to come and fight and trench warfare and so on and terrible sanitary conditions. But it looks like that the climatic changes and shifts in the mid the second decade of the twentieth century had some role to play in bringing those disease vectors back into play, This, in this case through some form of avian flu that jumped across. Uh, and so disease is a fundamental thing to understand, I think, within history, but also within ecologies, environment and climate.
3: And thinking about that flick of the switch in a different context, I didn't expect to read your book and come away with a deep fear of volcanoes. But I can say that I did. I did not realise how threatening they are to our way of life. Would you say that a volcanic eruption is potentially the biggest natural disaster we face in history? Or is there something else that you would point to as even more catastrophic?
4: In today's world, while we're sitting here recording, or when you're listening to this, uh, you know, we might have someone sitting in Moscow or in Pyongyang who decides that the time has come to take matters into their own hands. And uh, I can promise you that that would be even more devastating than, uh, than a volcanic eruption. And in fact, you know, I grew up in the, I mean, I was born in in the early 1970s. I grew up in the 80s. I mean, I'm, Rhiannon, please don't tell me when when you were born because it <laughs> made me feel really old and gray. Uh, but, you know, when, I grew up in a world where I was convinced and knew, not I, my generation believed that we would all die in a nuclear catastrophe where warheads launched from the Soviet Union, and the United States, whoever did it first would obliterate all of us. You know, how precarious the world looks from the military side right now, it's probably not quite that bad, uh, but it doesn't take much. But even a very small scale set of nuclear events where it doesn't involve every single missile being lit up in its silo can have a very dramatic impact on crops and can cascade into deaths measuring into the tens of millions so we can we're more likely i'd have thought to be the architects of our own catastrophe as human beings than natural causes but clearly the kind of three big ones are meteor and asteroid impact and and it's great that the, the DART program seemed to be able to have some impact on celestial objects coming towards us. Uh, we're probably safe from one of those for the next 100 years, NASA say. Let's hope we get there. But that, that's obviously one issue. Another one is, is to do with uh, volcanic activity. And mega eruptions are absolutely huge in their scale. I mean, even listeners will... Remember, we had, there was an eruption last year at a volcano in Tonga. And these amazing images of a you know massive tsunami that mercifully didn't have too bad an impact compared to other recent tsunami events, although you know devastating in a South Pacific population, particularly Tonga itself. Uh, that single eruption injected so much moisture into the atmosphere. It was an underwater eruption uh, that that has had a very clear impact on climates in the last eight to 12 months in terms of accelerating heating events. So volcanoes play a fundamental role in our past. Uh, we haven't had a really, really big one for a long time and volcanologists that I've come to learn and to love and to hang on every word and to, you know, if you really want to be scared, talk to one of them. The the danger of a VEI or an explosive event measuring on the scale of some of the biggest ones in global history you know will have lots of unpredictable impacts. so the injection of aerosols and of particles into the atmosphere in the short term will, will cool everything down it will make climate change and our global warming it'll fix it because as a nuclear war would do it would cool everything uh, at least to start with and then the question is can you grow crops can you survive animals die and presumably large-scale human mortality too And those who work on volcanoes directly, you know, we overdue a big one and we're very bad at predicting big ones. But as, again, as the U.S. Volcano Project have warned, you know, it's probably best that we should spend a bit of time thinking about it. I can't remember the exact Benjamin Franklin quote that I have right at the very end of the book. It says, you know, those who don't prepare for the worst always get the worst or something like that. And I think that volcanoes have played a really important role in pre-human histories, but even in the last sort of two, 3,000 years. Uh, for example, the Santorini eruption, most listeners, if they think about Santorini, will re- know this amazing island in the Aegean and will know that that had something to do with the collapse of the uh, Minoan civilizations in Crete. But what was more important was that, well, you know, sorry for anybody living in Crete at the time, uh, what was probably more important was that, that that helped spark the introduction of smallpox into the human environment and smallpox cost hundreds of millions of deaths just in the last hundred years alone. The last two hundred years alone, I should say. So uh, volcanoes are are really important, and not just how they help. Romantic literature. I mean, I write it's a great story um that other scholars have worked on too about Tambora in, in eighteen fifteen that produced the The Year Without a Summer and you know helped spark Mary Shelley and writing, you know, writing Frankenstein and a group of English writers sitting on the banks of Lake Geneva hoping they'd have a nice summer holiday with blue skies and having massive lightning flashes, grey skies, freezing cold. But these have social impacts too. And uh big volcanic events have been some of the most dramatic turning points in history long before our species became important and and during our species existence and one would expect that that will have a big role in the future whether we're a year away from it 100 years away or a thousand years away i don't know Uh, but when it comes um it will it will turn everything upside down
3: and we will come on to our current crisis later on in the conversation but before we get there one of the main themes that i took away from your book was entitlement a sense of entitlement over people but also entitlement over nature how do you think that's played out throughout history
4: well, not, not well. If you, look at, if you look at where we got to, human history has been about h- how do you make the best of your circumstances, right? That's an existential and metaphysical question, but also how do you make the best of what you have in front of you? And, you know, by and large, all of us and our, you know, going back tens of thousands, tens of thousands of years, want to live in places that look nice, that are, you know, that are hospitable, that ideally don't have poisonous Animals or dangerous plants around us, and that you know we want running water and you know nice sunsets and to admire the beauty of nature, so that's meant that we intervene in the natural environment in a way to shape it into ideals that, that suit us, and uh, we all have different tastes. everyone's made different, so some people love a good near Georgian house. Some people like no one at all on the landscape. But you know humans have, have always intervened very aggressively in the landscape to try to take what it needs. Um, And then often to push a little bit too far. And so looking back in human histories, those interventions have been profound, but there were many, many fewer people around in those days. So those impacts were less dramatic. But, you know, when one thinks back to the Mesopotamian popular civilizations or to the Indus Valley, one of the questions is if you're living together, how, how should you organize yourself? What is optimal? How do we cooperate and why should we cooperate? And one of the key questions that we see across many civilizations is around the availability of labor. And that question about uh, indenture, slavery, coerced labor is one that is as old as not just the written record, but beyond too. You know, inequality is an important part of our kind of human story. And it's an important part of ecological exploitation, because if you want to grow things, or if you want to rear animals, you need people to do it for you. And by and large, people are entitled, elites, priests, Uh, which I mean broadly, you know, academics tend to want to say, well, I'm doing important work thinking, writing, and that's the highest level of civilization. And, you know, I'll write about other people rather than actually growing things and maintaining them. So control of labor forces is, is important. Control of labor, of making people be able to build for you, be able to exploit, divert rivers, to dig irrigation channels, to clear irrigation channels. That's a kind of key part of the story too.
3: And thinking particularly about colonisation of the new world, what was the ecological consequences of that?
4: Well, catastrophic. I mean, starting with the human population. I mean, the introdu- I mean, that's I think well known that the arrival of Europeans who had immunities to diseases was a disaster for indigenous populations across North, Central, and South America. But then it worked in two ways, I and mean, we call it the Columbian Exchange—the sort of moment of post-Columbus when things come across the Atlantic in both directions. You know, some of the things that were hugely significant in our modern world, uh, like crops, like. Uh, peanuts or tomatoes or potatoes and the potato has a hugely significant role not just in you know love a good pack of chips on a saturday night the potato is a really important source of calories It's much cheaper and much more climate resilient than other kinds of crops and uh, they're very smart economists working on how the potato introduction potato reduces conflict in Europe and above all in Asia in China, the introduction of the potato means that you're able to feed yourself so there's less to fight about and so has a measurable impact on levels of confrontation so the things that come out of the Americas are hugely rewarding for other parts of the world and of course sugar cotton all those kinds of things uh, that are grown and looked after by enslaved peoples uh, means that again that question of labor becomes a preeminent one and and here in Europe we have a clearly a very dark, unpleasant history of um, transporting people in, you know, against their will across uh, the Atlantic to work in disgusting conditions for the benefit of producing crops at the cheapest possible value that could be brought back above all towards europe but that also helps enrich asia too because the the newly rich spanish portuguese and then the brits who get in on it french and so on uh, start to buy things from other parts of the world so that redistribution of crops of people of capital changes everything ecologically the introduction of horses uh, changes the lives of indigenous peoples because suddenly mobile groups like the Comanche and so on, uh, have access to uh, horses that allow them to cover and colonize larger distances themselves. So it's not just European colonization, it triggers a whole set of chain reactions into other parts of the world too. And, you know, I suppose the most important thing in colonized societies like Australia as well, is that you see the total decimation of populations who are living there but the ecological transformations are are enormous because pigs and cows and horses not indigenous to the americas then become a stable part of it so you know most of the world's beef is now being reared in south america at the expense of the rainforest that's cut down to create beef patties that typically don't get consumed in south america but get consumed elsewhere so the remodeling of nature of ecologies of working out how do we do things as cheap as we can because that's really what it comes down to is where, where can you graze the most cows at the lowest possible price? And that probably has long-term consequences that we should have been thinking about for a lot longer rather than how do we exploit nature, how do we exploit other human beings, how do we just make sure that we get what we want? And so the transformation of the Americas ecologically from plant life to pathogens to humans to, you know, to animals, it's you know, beyond seismic. I mean, it's epochal in its, in its transformations.
3: So when do people first start thinking then what we're doing is having an effect on the world around us?
4: Oh, I think as as long as you find recorded history, and I mean recorded history, I mean written sources. I mean, I think these kinds of discussions are, are hugely significant in the Vedic texts of ancient India. I think they're hugely important in things like the rise of Buddhism, of, you know, what is our engagement with the natural world and, you know, how we think of Buddhism today is, you know, Buddhism is very sensitive to the environment and ecologically very sensitive. In fact, uh, clearly Buddhist thought is not that way. It's that everything's an illusion and that everything dies. And so you shouldn't be thinking too much about saving and looking after. It's not about guardianship. It's it's about recognizing that everything is impermanent. But I think thinkers, scholars, uh, religious people have been thinking about the impact for as long as we can see. Partly because you know, you can, you know, the common experience of Floods and of droughts, or lightning strikes, or shortages, have troubled our—you uh, know—those who've gone before us to work out why it's happened. You know, how do we predict bad weather conditions? And you know, most global religions have a important element in the idea of how to pray for better weather or how to make that happen through offerings, for example, in Mesoamerican societies, or sacrifices and made in Mesopotamia. But even in Judaism, Christianity, Islam there are very important stories about about how to win God's favour and how paradise will, you know, the second coming or the end of time, that this is what heaven is going to look like. It'll be a place where the rivers run with sweet water and there's, you know, unlimited amounts of fruit that's in the perfect conditions and sweet and ready to eat. And so I think people have thought about that for a really very long time because we all know that there are consequences to uh, overstepping our ecological frontiers and the risks of when that happens is a cascade of malnutrition, disease, social-societal breakdowns and descent into much less sophisticated... Units, because people scatter. But I think, as far as who's been thinking about it, it's it's a sort of common question around h- how do we engage with the natural world? What is the human imprint? And you know, the last—I mean, we think again about the climate crisis today as being something that's caught caught us up in the last, you know, five ten years. But people have been deeply concerned about carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere for two hundred years question is why has no one done anything about it
3: so in your position then having looked at this history on such a grand scale for us in 2023 what do you think is the principal lesson we should take from the past in trying to forge a better future for ourselves
4: well i maybe i should come on another podcast and and, and do (laughs) that i mean i think that the the first thing is is you know to to underline that you know i'm a historian i've tried to walk through you know from the dawn of time through you know what was what was the climate like in rome how did people heat their those baths that we see the baths of caracalla in rome absolutely enormous you know where did the wood come from that had to be burnt every day to make that happen uh, you know what happened in uh not just the colombian exchange but you know h- how important was climate and the environment to the viking worlds or to the mongols you know why is it what role has climate and the environment played on gender roles. So I think that I would uh, respectfully probably say my job is to be as a historian to say what's happened and let people take their own lessons. I mean, I suppose the, the obvious and most logical couple of lessons are number one, we're in a bit of trouble. And everyone will have strong views about climate and strong views about the data that they read. But we should probably be thinking quite hard about Mitigation, because the ship has sailed on stopping things from happening. It's it's now what happens next. Uh, I think that uh, it's important as a as a historian to be queuing up readers to think about other parts of the world which have been under looked at across different periods, and to see what there are that one can learn from things like migrations, from disease, from uh, what societies in bloom or under stress look like. Uh, you know, but my my sort of best thing that ever happened to me which, you know, I was very fortunate and blessed with Silk Roads, is that young people applying to university said that they'd read Silk Roads and now wanted to go and study whatever it would be. And that range goes from, you know, Iran in the 1970s through to, you know, Egypt in the 1200s. And I think historians shouldn't be necessarily trying to come up with policy solutions, or maybe not in their books, They you know. But uh, it's to be trying to spark a next generation of, of scholars that might pick up on parts of what what you're writing about, so I think everyone will will take different, slightly different things from it. And the reason I'm slightly guarded is when I when I did when I wrote Silk Roads, I assume people would ask me all the time about you know the rise of Islam or what happened in the 14th century with the Black Death or you know what was going on in the exchanges between the Americas and et etc. And the only thing anybody ever asks is what's happening with China today and is Putin going to invade Ukraine. And so I know that that's how the reception might be that people want to ask, what should we do? But I think it's the first point for a historian is to explain how how we've got to where we are. And those size of those footprints, when you look back in the sand and where we come from, everyone will pick on a slightly different thing there, I think, about what they think is important. I, I guess the obvious one is that we all rise and fall together. You know, places do well in harmony. And when dislocation happens, it's never one pillar that fails and everything else goes on. Uh, We're all in it together. And at a world of global governance at the UN level, uh, you know, we've seen with Russia and Ukraine and other parts of the world too. uh, Those are areas of real concern around how do we cooperate. Uh, Even things around climate, you know, the 2015 Paris agreements, not a single one of the G20 are within their parameters they set up seven years ago, eight years ago now. And our inability to cooperate is our single biggest Achilles heel.
0: That was Peter Frankopan. His new book, The Earth Transformed, is published by Bloomsbury and available now. You can watch a video of this interview with Peter on our website at historyextra.com forward slash video. And you can also read a version of it in the April 2023 issue of BBC History magazine. That'll be on sale from the 16th of March. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane.
4: It came and rammed into our left wing.
1: With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
4: The Western world was asleep.